Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Michael, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Well, it's great to be here. I'm doing very well. It's a sunny day in Nova Scotia, and I've just it's going very well. Sunny day in Nova Scotia. So you are in Canada. I am in Canada. I started off life in the USA, but I am now living in Canada, have been for a long time, and uh, on the very East Coast. I believe it's quite beautiful there. So I spoke to your colleague, Christina, last week. Fabulous conversation. Very insightful young woman. Mm -hmm. I thought that we could follow up from the discussion we had with her. But to start, maybe talk the listeners through your background and how you ended up researching burnout. Okay. Well, it's it's an odd trail, but in most every trail that we take in life is always somewhat unique and and interesting. I started off actually uh, my degree in in university uh, from uh, University of Oregon, where I got my psychology degree, was really in clinical psychology, working on family therapy. And I thought that that was a fascinating thing in terms of social entities and how what was really interesting there yes. was with the things that were going on between people, rather. Uh, I was much more interested in what we, you could see happening between people than trying to figure out what was going on beneath the surface, like right there. And uh, soon after I came to uh, Acadia University in Nova Scotia, Canada, as an academic uh, job, uh, I was working with a residential mental health facility in the area and um, started getting interested in and, and was uh, actually being being involved in some conversations about some difficulties different parts of the uh, people working at the hospital were having with other people working at the hospital and sort of some tensions among members of work groups and that the tensions among people were you know, actually driving some people to resign or even leave their field of psychiatry or psychology altogether. And I was, you know, working with people to see, you know, are there ways that we could help uh, address some of the tensions that were bothering people in this way. And when it, this was way back when, and I read Christina Maslach and uh, Susan Jackson's first article on burnout, at that time. And I thought, this is really interesting stuff. This is capturing something quite important. And so um, I had a sabbatical year coming up uh, at at the university. So I just, um, as one did back in the olden days, Mm -hmm. I picked up a telephone and phoned Christina Maslach out of the blue and said, hi, you don't know me, but I'd like to come work with you for a year on this, uh, this issue of burnout and understanding it. And she said, okay, I have an office here you can use at the University of California, Berkeley. So uh, I uh, I got in my car and uh, we drove across the uh, uh, North America to California and spent a year working with Christina on this. 
And um, we wrote our first article together that year, and I thought found it to be an endlessly interesting topic to follow ever since then. And how many years ago was this? When did you do that sabbatical working with Christina in California? Uh, 1984. Wow. When they make a movie about your life, there's going to be a road trip scene of you going all the way from Canada to California. Make an interesting That's movie. That's it. At a, at a, in a green Volvo. In a green Volvo. I can imagine Brad Pitt driving a green Volvo playing you. It'll be quite a good movie. There you go. So, um, clearly, that's who you'd have to have to depict me. Yeah. <laughs> so as a start for the listeners, how do you and Christina define burnout? Because I think people have different definitions of the concept. Well, our definition, it follows how it's measured with the Maslach Burnout Inventory. And it also, which uh, the definition that the World Health Organization uh, has posted as its, you know, accepted definition of what is burnout is this three-part syndrome of a combination of uh, exhaustion, really chronic exhaustion, exhaustion just really before the day even begins exhaustion, uh, that combined with a distancing, a psychological distancing, which could be depersonalization or just a sense of cynicism about the work that you do, yes. and uh, combined as well with a low sense of accomplishment, a really discouragement at the same time. So that combination of those three things is uh, what we uh, focused on as burnout. How did you figure out that burnout was being caused between a mismatch between what people wanted to do and what they were doing? Because I haven't seen that definition for burnout before. How did you zoom in on that? What was the research behind it? Well, the research on it, basically, we started off looking. Uh, this was, I guess, in the 1990s when we were writing a book together called The Truth About Burnout in the mid-1990s, early 1990s. And we were looking at, well, what was the research identifying as the main uh, correlates of, 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 of job burnout, of the pieces of it? And it was this idea of these, it was really the areas of work life. where we looked at stuff about personality or uh, attitudes, whatever, yes. the relationships were fairly fuzzy at that point. But what was strong was that problems with workload, problems with uh, control, being able to make decisions about your work, uh, relationships with other people, the rewards, that basically it was, a, and, and so we're looking at this, that these are the things, and they're really part of the work environment. They're the management systems. They're yes. the uh, what's going on when people go at work, that that's where the problem was. And so you go, okay, are just these just bad places that are uh, damaging people? But then we would look at our surveys and see, well, most people are doing okay. You know, like a few, there's some people who are really having difficulties in these yes. environments, but actually a lot of people are doing fine. They say, that's just a job. Well, it's demanding, but it's a job. I'm not having a problem here. And so then we thought, okay, it's this intersection then. Some people are looking for something from that job that it's not providing, that there is a mismatch between the person. Because for some people, it's working. They're going, yes. okay, this is basically what I was looking for in the job. And they're going along, and it's 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 quite functional. But for some people, it's not working. That's where we thought you kind of look at the how they come together. and And that's... Uh, back to my thing about what's interesting to me is that what's going on between people and this between people and their work environments, that intersection yes. is where the interesting points are. 
Yeah, it's very fascinating. So you've obviously been doing the work for a long time. How have companies embraced the research? Because if I take the position of, let's say, the CEO of a large company with 10,000 employees, the insight is very useful to me. But it sounds like I have to do a lot of work to find the right places for people to slot them in there, to do checkups every year and a year and a half to make sure there's a congruency between the role and what people want to do. So how has the employment sector embraced these findings? Well, it's a very mixed kind of bag of how people are accepting yes. it, particularly how employers, how major employers are. I think that uh, employers understand fairly quickly that uh, there is a problem people are burning out they uh they're aware that it takes the edge off of the quality of some people's performance it drives turnover and it and, and so basically however when things are when they're able to hire more people when the job market's pretty good from the employer's point of view they're able to tolerate a fair bit of that and uh, so they go, okay, well, at first there's sort of the idea of, well, we can tolerate this and we don't really need to do that much. We just go get some more people when these people burn out. And then when things get a little more difficult in terms of hiring, I guess there's two pieces. One is the hiring market. And secondly, there's also more and more uh, expectation, sometimes formally from government and sometimes more informally from uh, the perception how people perceive your company to look like an ideal employer. You want to look like an employer where people would like to have a job and you want a reputation as being a good place to work. And so then a lot, the next step after that is to start doing things to alleviate the distress that people feel when they're in a work situation, that a mismatch kind of situation. So there's, you know, occupational health kinds of programs, workplace health programs, uh, at work or things for help people outside of work with uh, various programs to essentially alleviate the distress uh, downstream from difficult work situations. Yes. It is a fairly sophisticated and more unusual I think becoming more evident kind of pattern where they go, oh, we've got to actually change how the work is happening. It actually is worth all that trouble. And you're right. It's a trouble to yes. assess things and to make accommodations for people. Uh, your first line managers have to be have a have much more sophisticated skills to be able to uh, understand the problems that some people are encountering with their management systems and be able to adapt adapt that a management system so that more people can be productive there. So, uh, you know, some places get to that level of sophistication. Some are just trying to do, you know, calm things down with some workplace health uh, resources. And but there's still some that just are not paying much attention to it. Well, maybe it's a nicer way to say that there's not enough pain for them yet to pay attention. But at some point, they will start paying attention. And like any management idea or solution, companies are at different levels of maturity at rolling out things. And there'll mm-hmm. always be room for improvement. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing. So I want to switch gears a little bit yeah. here, right? Because clearly some roles yes. 
are more difficult than other roles, right? So if we lay out all of the different jobs employees could do, some by their nature are just much more difficult and prone to a burnout. I'll give you an example of this. Many years ago, when I was a senior partner in strategy, I spent time with the call center team for a major bank. And I was very surprised to see the hostility that they faced from members of the bank or customers of the bank when those customers called in to have a problem fixed. And, and I felt that it was in some cases almost abusive. So the question I have is that let's separate between roles where it's quite toxic just by the nature of the role and roles where things are a little bit better. I want to focus on those high toxic roles like dealing in call centers. How does the company manage a situation where by the nature of the role, it's going to be difficult for anyone in that role? Right. I think uh, there's a there, there's a few steps in there, one of which I think is to, uh, one, be very straightforward with people that that's what they're getting into. Like there isn't, yes. uh, you know, being very frank that we're hiring you to go into very difficult situations and, and uh, deal with people who are in an extreme state of mind. And, 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 and that's what you're getting into. Now, here's how we're going to train you to manage those situations very uh, well and, and to be able to keep them contained. Uh, here are the uh, support systems that we're going to have for you. Uh, knowing that you've gone through a whole lot today, here are some of the supports. Here are how many, you know, while th this maybe isn't a full 40-hour-a-week kind of job, maybe this is a job that you really do in a focused way for a shorter period of time. And then we have other activities, other yes. parts of the job that aren't quite so demanding so that you're able to pace that out. And, um, and but also to monitor and figure, well, still, we're gonna deal with people in difficult situations, but there's a limit and be able to uh, take, you know, support their people when they're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, customers, uh, whatever, who are becoming violent or becoming particularly uh, obnoxious, and that you know, say no, that there is a limit to this, and we are going to take steps to uh, to assure that we're protecting our people. So I think there's a lot of things around that. Yeah. Uh, on the other end, is just saying, oh, putting people into this situation without really fully preparing them or backing them up. And I, I know that's when I, I was reading a lot of comments from a hospital survey at where, you know, uh, it was a children's hospital and people were, you know, talking about uh, abusive parents. The parents of children will become panicked at times when their children are in pain or, or their lives are being threatened. And people, parents can get very extreme. Uh, and what people are looking for, they understood that, but they wanted the hospital to be behind them. They wanted the support of their peers, of their managers, of the system that were really, you're with me when I'm taking yes. on this difficult situation. Uh, so that was that was really more what they were getting across rather than just, oh, I never want to deal with a parent who is uh, feeling upset. That's very interesting. So the crux of your research is that burnout is caused by a mismatch between workers and their jobs. When you say mismatch, do you mean mismatch between expectations 
skills? How do we define mismatch? Oh, it, it is all those kinds of things. Uh, it, it's a mismatch in terms of expectations uh, can be, you know, that people are yes. looking to grow their competence, that efficacy part of things, that sense of accomplishment. Uh, they have expectations there. I mean, the employer has expectations of the employee, but employees yes. have expectations the other direction as well. And so are they being met? But there's also just basic psychological needs like, uh, like you know, sort of relatedness or belonging. People want to be a valued member of a social group and yes. they're looking for that from work. And it's just about anybody is, you know, and, and I, uh, that's, uh, and, and some, some people are able to establish that for themselves within their work group and other people uh, are, are run into huge difficulties getting that established within their work group. And uh, that, you know, for any number of reasons, but basically that's a mismatch when people are treating people with disrespect uh, in any kind of way. Uh, and that's, you know, just sort of a basic psychological need that I see there. Yes. Skills as well. When people say, you know, I, you know, I, I'd love to go do this job, but, you know, I need more training, I need more knowledge, I need more access to information, some coaching uh, in order to do that. Uh, you know, that kind of mismatch as, as well. A lot, so many jobs are so complex. One of the shifts that people often make is into first-line management from just doing the work to being a manager with very little in terms of really effective training and how to be a really good First line manager, how to be a supervisor, how to have difficult conversations with people who are encountering problems with their work. Um, and so without training, then you're going to get that gap and, and, and people are going to be anxious, are going to be uh, distressed by that. So if I have six employees working in my team and they are suffering from burnout because of a mismatch between their expectations and their jobs, for one of the six people, it could be they have an expectation that will have more of a family environment, but it doesn't meet their needs. For another person, it could be work overload. For another, they could feel they're not being paid well. So there could be many things driving this burnout. It's not just one common thing. Oh, that's part of the, the, why it's, it's such a challenging and creative problem-solving process for yes. the uh, supervisor to be able to, to, to uh, address uh, this multifaceted part of what they're in charge of. Yeah, because for most companies, the way they manage burnout is they'll simply pay you a bonus or they'll offer you some reward or they'll give you time off, but it may not be the thing that's causing your burnout. So they're not addressing the root cause. So given how nuanced this is, assuming that these ideas were accepted in the workplace, which I'm sure they are, how do you see the balance between the employee driving this conversation versus HR or managers driving this conversation? So who's going to be driving the process here to figure out why burnout is happening? How do you see that ideally working out? Oh, ideally working out would be a, a lot of it has to come, some initiative has to come from the employee because they're the one yes. who know, employees know how, to, how they feel, uh, you know, most directly. They have that information most directly is, you know, are they feeling that exhaustion? Are they really uh, losing that connection with their work? So that that is definitely part of the mix. But one of the barriers there is that individuals 
it, it's difficult to trust the management environment that they're talking with. Are they actually going to help me solve this problem and resolve this and come to a happy conclusion? Or am I going to be, uh, you know, uh, give it a hard time because yes. I'm admitting that I'm having uh, difficulties managing all of this. So it, it it's then, again, we get back into relationship dynamics and, and requiring a quality of trust uh, between, you know, individuals and the persons to whom they're reporting so that that on on a on a personal level is something that you know hopefully develops and that the managers have the skills and experience and and attitude to be able to uh you know be (laughs) that trustworthy person for the employees uh when you get into larger systems that's where doing uh, you know, surveys that, require, that that provide a certain degree of uh, 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 confidentiality, if not anonymity, for individuals. And you can look at things at sort of the work group level, because while, you know, within a work group, some people are doing well and some are having a more difficult time. With a large organization, one with, you know, a couple of you know, hundreds of departments or elements to it, uh, you can you can do a lot of analysis on the work group level, and you can see yes. well there are work groups where really a lot of people are having a really difficult time, and there are other work groups where it's coming out much much better that way. And then you can start uh, you know you don't need to have the individual identification there. You can say okay those difficult places we can see there's a lot of mismatches on control. They think they're micromanaged by someone who is really uh, unpleasant and how they're doing yeah. that micromanaging. And can we, What first of all, can we do some coaching with that manager? Secondly, can we set up a process where the group can uh, establish a more shared kind of decision-making culture among themselves in terms of a team intervention? And so you're able to start developing a different kind of culture within within a piece of the organization that way. Yes, it's difficult to do. But my own experience, and I was speaking to this with your colleague Christina last week, is that I've stumbled my way into the same insight that you and Christina developed. I was working with a very talented colleague, but this person was really struggling and the motivational levels were very low. And we tried many things. We tried things like getting them more support, giving them more free time, many, many different things. But the thing that had the biggest impact was when we changed their roles. And the performance of this colleague improved dramatically. I remember telling Christina that this person, when we changed their roles, they were able to work so well that they raised the profit of that division by 50% by themselves. So the point I want to make here is that as the leader of that team, I could see the team wasn't doing well. So it was in my interest to fix the problem. But for many managers, Mm -hmm. just like me, and leaders and executives and CEOs, we often don't know what's causing the burnout. And I had to do it through a trial and error process. But for many companies, they wouldn't do that. So the question I have is that I've never seen this definition of a burnout anywhere before. And obviously, I don't read in this space as much. But how do we get executives and managers 
to understand this? How do you get out the message faster? What is the process you're using for that beyond the book, which is very well written? Oh, well, clearly. Um, well, I talk with a lot of people, but I think I think it's a fundamental kind of shift in, in just what exactly is the role of a manager, particularly, uh, you know, uh, the manager vis-a-vis the people that are, you know, part of that individual's, you know, work group. And yes. that um, it, uh, yeah, our, our world has moved, you know, it keeps moving further and further away from a, uh, a you know, a, a, a hierarchical kind of structure. I mean, in a way, some people are still trying to do the hierarchical structure and I have yes. all the authority and you do not have any authority. But that is becoming less and less relevant. And particularly if you are interested in uh, recruiting, hiring people who are young, <laughs> you're yeah. going to find that a lot of them don't really jive with that kind of idea of authority anymore. It is more and more about this relationship where we have to be aware of each other's, um, you know, point of view in a situation, be able to uh, get across that you've heard that other person's point of view and yes. are responding to it. And I think that that's, that's becoming more and more like that's the management model that's going to take places forward and be able to retain, develop, and make the most of, uh, you know, uh, the, this current, you know, coming in generation of of, of of people that are who are going to be the future for making everything work. So I think that's um, that I, that's that's where I see. And that's where I get the you know, the idea that this burnout thing is really more of this existential crisis, and you learn a lot about what exactly is going on with people's identity yeah, and um, sense of themselves by looking at what does burn them out, but also what is the other side of that. And you say some people, if you shift just the right thing. You take somebody who's really disengaged into being one of your most productive employees, but uh, as you said, you either have to be very insightful or quite lucky to do that. Yes, and I think one of the challenges we have in society is that when we do suffer from burnout, we assume it's a normal part of our work lives. We suffer from burnout, we've got to get through it, recover a little bit, and then start increasing our workload and we're going to suffer from burnout every now and again and that's the way we approach burnout rather than saying that there's a burnout happening here i need to think about why this is happening because it shouldn't be the case and it was what you said earlier which is very insightful we're moving from this command and control structure to one whereby we're empowering employees more and i think that as that transition continues to take place companies and the way they set up their management structures would pass on more of this responsibility first to employees, but it also encourage managers to have these conversations and to think about preventing burnout in the first place versus thinking about how to survive it when it inevitably happens. Because in the field that I tend to operate in, which is private equity, financial services, management consulting, and so on, it's almost expected you will suffer from burnout. It's not seen as a negative thing. And I do know of some people who work themselves to the bone, suffer from burnout, but they carry that as a badge of honor. So in a long way, what I'm trying to say is that we have to change what we value 
in employees for this to continue happening. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And they really designing work much more for people rather than hoping that people have designed themselves to fit what work expects. That's that's very well said. Actually, that is the problem, isn't it? If someone is not doing as well as they should be doing, we automatically assume it's their fault rather than saying, is this the best role for the person? Yeah. And that it is it's a different way of looking at it that way is to is to say, okay, well, how are we going to adapt things here? And uh, you know, to bring the person along, it's not like you always have to go just exactly where they are. You know, but people have to adapt and change as well. That's just part of being out there in the world. But I think that the balance has been a lot of rigidity on this side of employers, and uh, you know, there's only so much that people can bend themselves to fit what's what's uh, expected yes i think it also has to change the way and i'm here i'm thinking out aloud in a way you have to change the way companies manage almost their financial reporting because i'm speaking from my own experience when we used to hire mbas from top schools in the world to join our practice areas like corporate finance and corporate strategy and so on and we would spend a lot of time to recruit them, which is an expensive exercise for consulting firms. We would then have to develop them and train them over a year and so on. If someone came to me and said, hey, Michael, I thought about it and I think I'm a better fit for the operations practice. So I think that I should go to the operations practice. Personally, I would take that as a sign of a lack of appreciation and I'd be quite offended by it. But if you apply the lens of what causes burnout, it would make more sense for that person to join the operations practice, stay in the business, which benefits the company overall. But because of the way our PL is set up, we almost get punished for this. And I wonder, you know, if that's a step company needs to take to encourage this kind of way of diagnosing what causes burnout, but also allowing a solution that benefits the company. Right, and to getting there means one, being able to recognize the strengths in the talent that you have, but and then the flexibility to be able to, to shift the game when it really needs to happen. And, and, now, and there's a lot to be, because individuals are going to change that fit, that fit that even if the job stays the same, People are going to change and they'll be looking for different things, different opportunities. But you've got, you know, hopefully if you've got a good foundation with that person working with the firm, then, uh, you know, following that, making the most of this uh, this development as they're changing is uh, brings a lot of value. Um, bringing in brand new people is important, but, you know, making the most of the folks that are connected already with you is uh, makes a lot of financial sense. Yes, because I've seen so many companies, when someone wants to leave a role, they take it personally rather than looking at the the total cost of having this person and bringing them in and saying, okay, we've already sunk this cost. Mm-hmm. Why don't we find a way to keep them in a role that makes them happy? And I think it's a it's a very emotional thing. And it's not something that comes natural to people. At least that's my experience. I think t- people do take this personally if someone wants to move. And I think there, there's a lot of work to be done for managers and leaders to not take these things personally. Yeah, 
Yeah, right. To be able to see, okay, what's really the bigger picture here in terms of the company, in terms of this individual, as well as me, and uh, and and what what is winning has got a different kind of idea. What is a successful outcome for this? Yeah, it, 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 which it, it takes takes a lot of um, sort of insight in order to be able to find that way insight into yourself and your own motivations as a leader. So your work during COVID nineteen, did you find that? employees in general found it easier to work from home and they found working conditions better or did you find stress levels going up oh it's a whole mix i think it really depends on the context yeah. the type of work all kinds of things like for me working at home was great i have a nice office i'm just living in a you know yeah. a nice small town there's a lot of space uh, just with my wife my daughter at the same time was working at home and she had a, a, a two-year-old and a seven-year-old uh, had to do beginning childcare and uh, homeschooling as well as doing her job full-time in a place that had a lot less space available in a city. Very different kind of situation. Uh, some jobs can be done just as well from yes. home. Other jobs like apparently, you know, doing K-12 teaching not so that didn't work so well from a yeah, distance. I can imagine. You know, uh, there's a real, there's, you know, it just wasn't. It wasn't that these teachers were not good. I mean, it was outside of their wheelhouse to teach this way, but that isn't how you engage, you know, seven year olds or 10 year olds in learning, is it, you know, this thing. And so uh, that kind of really just, so, and, and then for some folks, you know, there was a stressful beginning because it's different. Everything's different, as a bit, and yeah. also COVID was scary. You know, there was all kinds of things that everything in life was upset. Uh, so that was stressful in and of itself. But once people got into the groove, um, then it worked for folks. And really, the, what I've seen, most everybody who was doing it after a while thought they were even more productive than they were going into the office. And now there's this battle to try to drag people back to the office <laughs> against their will. Yes. And I think it's rather absurd, but uh, the way, you know, some employers are managing this uh, is, is rather, you know, it's just causing a lot of difficulty that you got enough difficulties, you know, running businesses yes. and organizations in this day and age. You don't need to create new ones for yourself. So when you say they're mismanaging it, you're referring to these demands that people get back into the office by the 23rd of February, working four days a week. If that's the case, how do you yeah, think they thing. should manage yeah. it? What would be the best practice for them in managing this? Oh, I think a collaborative process where you see, you know, you, you do start interacting with people, you know, at a distance or wherever, but basically, you know, you're uh, with the group as a whole, with individuals and saying, okay, what is the thing that works best for you? Yes. And make that case for me, you know, make a pitch that this is really, this is your best configuration. Uh, I'm going to make a pitch as the leader that I need people together some of the time. I, I, right. I, I, I can, I, you know, if you can just say, if you say, I have to have everybody in the office every single day, I think that the leader has a big challenge there to say, well, why? What for? <laughs> you know? uh, and, and to say, oh, to promote creativity and whatever. Like, you said, no, that isn't how you promote creativity. Yes. Like, show me the data that that's actually an effective way to get new ideas going. You're not you, you, every day, you know. So I think that that and then work out. Okay, here's what we have to do for the group. We've got to have you here some of the time. That's the way you know it's set up. 
but um, but but and, and I think leaders have to know what exactly do they want from people. I think that's a big gap is oh, that yes, there's a lot of true. managers who cannot articulate what exactly do I want these people to produce. So it's just easier to see whether or not they showed up. <laughs> well, I think what <laughs> you're saying makes a lot of sense. And you said something that I thought was quite profound. You said leaders must know what they want. So in the examples mm -hmm. we're seeing, there are leaders who are saying that creativity is down, collaboration is down, it's affecting the company. But what they're measuring is the percentage of employees who are working in the office full time, rather than saying, hold on a second, let's measure productivity, creativity, and collaboration. And if that number is going up, it doesn't matter how many employees are in the office when we want them to be there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah. And, 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 and put a bit more depth into what really encourages creativity and collaboration, uh, you know, uh, the, the proximity is one factor, but it's yes. only one factor. It's not the constant factor. I certainly, uh, yeah, my experience is, you know, you need that creative work needs uh, some deep time on one's own, as well as opportunities to connect with others. Well, my experience when I used to be a senior partner in strategies, I specialize in state-owned companies large businesses owned by governments. Mm -hmm. And they always had these huge head offices, I mean, massive buildings with all the employees in there. But I would say of all the companies I've worked with and my colleagues have worked with, not more than a handful were able to get collaboration, creativity, and productivity up because they brought people together. So as you say, just bringing people together is not enough. Because before COVID, Many companies had people together, but some of them were more creative, more productive than others. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a missed opportunity here. When people were sent home during COVID, companies should have thought to themselves, when we bring them back, how do we bring them back in a way that works for us? And I think they missed that opportunity because now they're bringing people back and they want it to be like you know, pre-COVID time. And I think they missed that opportunity to rethink what they really want with their employees. Yeah, and we're not pre-COVID time. Uh, we, uh, it, it's not over. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yes, it's not post-COVID. I mean, that's a mistake people make. <laughs> that, that is a mistake. And I think, yeah, uh, yeah and, and to be able to really understand what is, uh, it, it, to examine what was going on that was creative, that was collaborative while people were, uh, you know, working remotely uh, and, and appreciating that and trying to figure out how to build on that and not to have this one, because it just seems too easy for the manager to just proclaim people must come back. It's, it's just, you look like you're doing something, but you're doing nothing. And that is, uh, that's just simply not what's called for these days. Well, it's also the cost, right? When you tell people to come back to work, you're basically destroying one and a half hours of value in the morning when they prepare to go to work and they have to commute. And then in the evenings when they have to commute mm -hmm. back home. And the question you have to ask yourself is that yeah. with that value being destroyed, is it worth the benefit? And it's almost taken for granted that if employees need to be in the office, they have to figure out how to manage the commute and so on. So it comes back to something uh -huh. you said earlier, and you said it very well. Employers need to know what they want from employees. 
and they have to make decisions based yeah. on knowing that. There has to be a clear purpose as opposed to simply saying, well, before we used to work together, now we're going to do it again. Yeah, yes. Very good. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit here. Yeah. In your work, you've obviously looked at data sets from Canada, the United States, and so on. Do you find these findings apply equally around the world or they're more relevant to certain kinds of management structures and certain kinds of cultures? Okay, well, the data that I've spent most of my time with really uh, pertains largely to healthcare. And with healthcare organizations, they're very similar around the world. Like what you run into into a hospital pretty much wherever you are. I mean, some are more uh, well resourced than others, <laughs> certainly that. Yes. But a hospital is much more like a hospital uh, in one country or another than it is like a post office, right? It's, yes. it's got a certain quality. And and that's the piece that I've really had a depth of experience with. And and the the basic patterns are there. Like I, I one thing I, I get uh you know I, I, I can something I can't go along with is people want to go, oh I want to get the a uh, precise measure for the stresses of nurses versus accountants versus um, yes. you know doctors, and I'm like, no, that that's not really the important issue. The important issue is that they're having this experience of that. That's really a basic universal human experience of exhaustion and discouragement and losing faith in what you used to have faith in, and it isn't the precise aspects of your occupation that's really matters here what matters is that there's this mismatch between the yes. person and their basic psychological needs and what's happening in this environment so that's what i find is 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 the consistent thing that goes across cultures like for some cultures uh you know it, it's interesting with you know um northern european countries when they take the maslow burnout inventory they tend to score uh more positively than North Americans do. Yes. And, uh, and that's fairly consistent, not totally consistent, but fairly consistent kind of pattern. But they're just as concerned about burnout. They feel uh, it's just like that's still a very important issue to them. And what correlates with it, uh, what has an impact on it, are the same kinds of things. It's just that the sort of the level of how the scores come in uh, are somewhat shaped by the environment, but the underlying dynamics of what pushes burnout and, and what alleviates it are really similar. So to paraphrase this for the listeners, some cultures may be more willing to accept this. They may have different tolerance levels for burnout, but the consistent thing is that anywhere in the world, if you find a better match between employee expectations and their jobs, it can only make things better for them. You, you said that very well. Thank you. Yes. You're most <laughs> welcome. Yes. Well, actually, when I was speaking to Christina and I speak to anyone, I always, it's obviously a pleasure to speak to you because you know what you're talking about. But also it's an opportunity to speak with someone who's really an expert in a field. And I always think to myself, I'm not just interviewing you. I'm getting a chance to talk to someone who really has spent their life dedicated to something so I want to know as much as you know that I can take into my own businesses to improve them. So, you know, I always appreciate the fact that you've dedicated your life to studying this field. You've come up with some brilliant insights. But the thing that's most interesting to me is we were talking about collaboration and creativity. 
you and Christina still collaborate, but you're in Canada and she's in California. Is that right? Yes, we are four time zones apart, and we have been. You know, we've been working together again since. You know, for, I guess yeah, forty years now. <laughs> we've 40 been working years. together, and we've written a number of books and all of this. And we, she's been in San Francisco, and I've been in Nova Scotia. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that. But we do actually get together occasionally, but yes. mostly we're at a huge distance. Yes, the level of collaboration, the creativity has not dissipated because you are not spending more time together. Oh, no, no, I think now it's really, it's a matter of, and we've got, well, we're developing our ideas and, and yeah, location, physical proximity is not, not the critical part of it. The communication is being able to share ideas, uh, you know, and again, on one's emails, it's very important to be respectful of the other person of, of when they send ideas, then how you give feedback to each other, how we, we develop the ideas together, we go back and forth, we challenge each other, but it's a very, uh, you know, it's a very respectful kind of challenging, because, you know, we really uh, see each other very well. And, you know, I've, um, you know, it, it, writing a book with somebody it's 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 a big deal, and we've written a few of them together, and uh, it, it always works out well that way. And it's always strengthens our relationship doing that. So, it's uh, yeah, it, 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 creativity. It can we have the mediums to make all this happen in terms of communication? Yes. I mean, it's just amazing uh, what we have for all of this. I mean, with Google Docs, like you're working on the same document or something, all these kinds of things that you can do now, uh, which, um, you know, really developed over these uh, previous decades have been so, you know, the, the, the need to have everybody in the same room is really, uh, you know, it's really overblown. Yeah, it's more about having everyone on the same page, pursuing the same purpose, rather than having everyone mm -hmm. in the same room. And it's a good example of this because we talked about how employers are pushing employees back to come in by a certain time. But as your own experience shows that you don't need to do those things to get the best out of people. So, Michael, I want to thank you for a very, very interesting conversation. Probably one of the most interesting conversations okay, well, I've had. Oh, well, I thank you for uh, uh, for those kind words, but also for this interesting conversation because I, I likewise, I really enjoy talking with you. And um, uh, yeah. Well, I hope we can stay in touch. The thing about strategy I notice in leadership and business is that there's often just a few ideas that have an outsized impact on your business. It's not about knowing every concept in business. It's about finding those few that have unusual amount of leverage. And this interpretation and definition of burnout I find to be quite useful. And I think that if managers could internalize this, they can have quite a big impact in terms of how they created value but also that have more empowered and motivated employees. So I want to thank you for this, Michael. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, thank you. I, I, this has been a great conversation and um, I, I, I wish you well. You as well. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show talking about your new research soon. Take care, Michael. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.